Hello, and welcome to the March 2023 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice evaluates inhaled sedation in mechanically ventilated subjects with COVID-19. In a retrospective cohort study, Gomez et al. compared intravenous sedation to inhaled sedation using the need for high-dose opioids, opioid analgesia, midazolam, and need for muscle relaxants, and risk of delirium as endpoints. They studied retrospectively 283 subjects, 230 were administered IV sedation, and 53 received inhaled sedation. They found that those patients receiving inhaled sedation that had, were associated with lower doses of opioids, benzodiazepines, and muscle relaxants. The study re- ended up using inhaled sedation because in the midst of COVID-19, they were running out of the usual drugs um, delivered intravenously um, in these subjects. So it's a retrospective study under duress. So there are some issues related to the methodology that um, for sure need to be replayed in a prospective randomized fashion. In an accompanying editorial by DeLima and colleagues, they review the promise and the technical issues related to inhaled sedation. Um, there are some new devices that provide this, but even in these cases, you have to scavenge or place the extra path of extra gas through charcoal absorber um, or some other system to remove it from the environment so it doesn't impact the caregivers. Um, the editorialists note that this retrospective trial provides some support for prospective trials to confirm any potential advantages. Miller and colleagues evaluated a quality improvement project of an extubation readiness test association with time to first extubation and the reintubation rate in children following cardiac surgery. The new extubation readiness test used a fixed pressure support of five centimeters of water pressure compared to their previous system that allowed pressure support up to 10 centimeters of water pressure based on clinician and input. In two temporally distinct cohorts, so it was before and after, 320 subjects were studied. The fixed pressure support group demonstrated a longer time to the first extubation, but no change in reintubation rate. Confounding variables in the fixed pressure support group included a greater incidence of cardiac arrest and higher level of post-extubation respiratory support. After multivariable regression using these variables, there was no difference in time to first extubation or extubation failure. Wakeham provides accompanying opinion, noting in both groups, about 60% of subjects were not extubated after passing their first spontaneous breathing trial. And you can imagine in cardiac surgical patients, there might be a number of reasons for that, including the need to return to the operating room. He advocates for larger multi-center perspective trials to determine optimal ERTs for pediatrics. Um, Pediatric studies are, are more difficult to do because the volume of patients isn't near as much, and multi-center trials are really critical for that population. Rich Calais and coworkers describe a risk stratification tool and volume-based cuff leak test to assess post-extubation strider in adults. The post-extubation strider risk assessment was evaluated using a cuff leak test using a volume cut point, so the volume that leaks is greater than or less than 110 milliliters. In almost 700 subjects, true positives were identified in 15% of the cases. Most patients with positive cuff leak tests were seen in women and subjects with acute brain injury. They found that a leak volume greater than 110 milliliters was associated with uh, post-extubation strider risk of about 6%, whereas the risk was seven times greater when the leak is less than 110 milliliters.
Meyer and Schmidt provide an accompanying editorial, noting that it's unlikely that a single test will replace expert clinical assessment, which may include additional imaging and direct visualization using laryngoscopy. However, given its excellent negative predictive value, this cuff leak test based on volume may be a useful tool to help expedite safe extubation. Goulart et al. evaluated the impact of adding non-invasive ventilation to high-intensity exercise in subjects with COPD and heart failure. On separate days, subjects performed incremental cardiopulmonary exercise testing and three constant load tests. Infrared spectroscopy was used to measure oxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin in the peripheral and respiratory musculature. They concluded that non-invasive ventilation as an adjunct to high-intensity exercise resulted in unloading of the respiratory muscle and improved distribution of flow. This idea that but whether it's oxygen or NIV or both can improve exercise tolerance or allow the patient to exercise longer seems to be fairly well um, studied and most of the studies agree that it helps. The question is, does that have a benefit to the patient long-term? Otsuka and colleagues evaluated the effectiveness of single triple in ther therapy in COPD subjects. Pulmonary function studies were performed before and after one month of single inhaler triple therapy. And everybody's trying to move COPD patients to a single inhaler to improve compliance with their medications. Two drug combinations were studied, and they found that single inhaler triple therapy significantly improves spirometry when compared to the pre-intervention, and that one drug combination was more effective in subjects with severe sub symptoms, while the other was more effective in subjects with mild symptoms. Kondo and others performed an in vitro comparison of two blister-type inhalers, both ellipta and discus, measuring the particle release volume and peak inspiratory flow through each. They found that ellipta required lower inspiratory flows than discus and might be preferable for patients with impaired pulmonary function. Patelli Zopaleri performed an observational cross-sectional study using teleconferencing 30 days after discharge in subjects who had been admitted for COVID-19. Subjects were assessed and performed a sim simulated activities of daily living. SpO2, fatigue, and dyspnea were monitored at the end of each ADL. They report that SpO2 was similar among the ADLs, but walking triggered desaturation in the greatest number of subjects. The persistence of symptoms following COVID-19 infection was independent of hypoxemia during exercise. Imamura and colleagues retrospectively reviewed subjects with chronic fibrosing interstitial pneumonia to determine the impact of desaturation during the six-minute walk test on mortality. Compared with mild CFIP subjects, severe subjects had significantly larger changes in SpO2 as well as longer SpO2 reduction and recovery time. They concluded that dynamic changes in SpO2 and heart rate during the six-minute walk test were associated with an increased risk for exacerbation or mortality in subjects with chronic fibrosing and interstitial pneumonia. Moreno-Giraldo and others performed a cross-sectional diagnostic study in 765 subjects referred for spirometry. They compared the reproducibility and accuracy of the proposed measures against FEV1, FVC post-bronchodilator, and less than 70%, and evaluated the proportion of respiratory symptoms for the FEV1, FVC, and FEV1, FVC6 ratios and peak extra flow slope. They noted that FEV1, FVC6 ratio, peak extra flow slope, and 50% forced vital capacity slopes had very similar diagnostic performances 
compared to the standard FEV1 as a percent of FVC. Loberger et al. evaluated pediatric extubation failure resulting from airway and non-airway complications. In this single center retrospective study, the extubation failure rate was 10% over a three-year period. Failures related to the airway were over half the causes. The most common failure was airway obstruction. They concluded the extubation failure in pediatrics was 1.5 times greater when it's related with failure of the airway. Medeiros and colleagues evaluated the ability of three anesthesia ventilators and two ICU ventilators to provide ventilation in a neonatal lung model. The model used variable respiratory mechanics and degrees of leak. They found significant differences in performance with each device. In the presence of a leak, performance between anesthesia and ICU ventilators was similar. There was one device in the group that in the presence of, the, of a leak could not maintain the PEEP, the anesthesia device. Malin and others performed a quality improvement initi initiative to reduce screening chest radiographs in the ICU. The primary goal was to reduce the number of radiographs in part by eliminating unnecessarily daily screening. Over the study period, daily chest radiographs were reduced by a third, corresponding to a quarter million dollar a year annual cost savings. Heldewig and others evaluated an extended lung ultra ultrasound score to monitor subjects with COVID-19, comparing a 6 and 12 zone ultrasound score. Use 100, using 130 ultrasound examinations in 40 subjects, the concise lung ultrasound score, so just six zones, was equally informative as the extended lung ultrasound score. They also noted that monitoring patients undergoing position changes requires the clinician be aware that the score may change resulting from, from position change rather than changes in disease pattern. Zafar et al. provide a short report in the use of positive expiratory pressure device for COPD subjects experiencing dyspnea during exertion. Golpe described the relationship of nocturnal dyspnea and COPD exacerbations on the associated risk mortality risk in COPD in another short report. Chatburn contributes a narrative review on his concept of evolution of in intermittent mandatory ventilation, describing four different kinds of IMV at this point in time. Inokuchi provides a systematic review of post-extubation complications, comparing outcomes between negative suctioning as you remove the tube and positive pressure delivering a breath as you remove the tube styles of extubation. We appreciate you subscribing to the Restoration Care Podcast and look forward to receiving your papers and your continued support of the journal. Thank you. Thank you.